Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday, uh, April 14th, was a really important event in the sports world. Does anybody know what happened last Sunday if you're a sports fan? Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods won his fifth Masters. I know a sports analogy to open on Easter Sunday. I've already lost some of you. Stick with me. Stick with me. Tiger Woods won his fifth Masters tournament last Sunday after 11 years without winning a major golf tournament. And after really significant moral failure and after really significant physical setback, And of course, the sports world was on fire when this happened, as you surely know, if you follow sports. And uh, I was one of those people. And on Monday morning last week or this week, I was reading up on some sports news and I read multiple articles about Tiger's victory. And one article started by saying this, Tiger's victory, you can imagine it, right, was a resurrection from the dead. Tiger's victory was a resurrection from the dead. Tiger Woods, apparently, has come back to life. The world has changed. Now, preachers definitely understand the art of mild exaggeration. Preachers understand the art of mild exaggeration, but that is a pretty significant one. You know, we toss around words like resurrection and ideas like coming back from the dead understating just how incredible something like that would be if it actually happens. Our familiarity with using resurrection terminology in things like sporting events, though, um, they actually speak to a really central question. Is something like resurrection 
actually possible? Is something like resurrection actually possible? And when you consider the Christian faith, that's the first question that has to be answered. What are we to make of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? What do you make of it this morning, I wonder? Is it an exaggeration? Is it a metaphor only for the new life that comes in the spring, for the new hope that all human beings hope for? Or is it something that we are to take at face value? Is it something we're to see as a historical fact? Is it to be understood, dare I say, as a miracle? As a literal miracle? You know, that's not just an ivory tower question for the theologians of the world. That's an incredibly practical question. It's really the issue on which everything depends. The Bible itself tells us elsewhere that if the resurrection of Jesus isn't literally true, then of all people on the planet, Christians are the most pitiful. So today I want to look with you, just for a couple of minutes, at the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to show you how, hopefully, it can change everything. You know, today's Easter. We're finishing up our seven-week series on our core values, the things we want to be most known for here at Christ Church. And we're closing today with our final core value, which we call the idea of the gospel changing everything. And that's an appropriate thing for Easter because the gospel is the good news about what has happened to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. The word gospel, as I said, means good news. It refers to the good news about what's happened to Jesus. And it's at the very heart of the Christian witness, at the very heart of what we claim to believe if we're followers of Jesus. And it's what I want you to see this morning. The power and the reality of the resurrection is something that can transform your life, both now and forever, if you accept it. The power and the reality of the resurrection is something that can transform you forever. And so I want to look with you at Matthew's gospel and Matthew's account of the resurrection. He was a witness to these things, and he spoke with other witnesses of these things. His testimony is trustworthy. So let's look at the chapter together. Let me break it up into three parts. We're going to see the story of the resurrection, the contesting of the resurrection, and the results of the resurrection. The story, the contesting, the results. First, let me show you the story. Verses 1 through 10 tell us. Matthew begins with recounting what had happened. He says that early on Sunday morning, just when the sun had come up, the day after the Jewish Sabbath, faithful women, including Mary Magdalene, went to visit Jesus' tomb. And when they get there, things began to shake, quite literally. Matthew tells us that there was an earthquake. Why was there an earthquake? Because an angel, a heavenly messenger sent by God, had appeared at the door of Jesus' tomb. And if you read the story with me, you'll know that the ground wasn't the only thing that was quaking on that morning. The soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb were quaking as well. They were so mortified, so afraid that they were trembling in their boots, unable to respond. We read about it there in verse 4. So what has happened to cause such trembling? Well, the angel tells us. Look with me. Verse 6. Jesus, the one you came to visit, is not here, for he has risen, as he said. You know, there you have it. There you have it in a very succinct way. For he has risen. Four words in English. In the original language of the New Testament, that is one word. And everything depends upon that one word. The whole of the gospel truth rests on that word like like an inverted pyramid 
all the things that we claim to believe depend upon the veracity, the truthfulness of this one word. If this word is not true, if it's just trumped up or poetic or symbolic, then the whole Christian edifice comes crashing down. And by the way, it deserves to come crashing down because it's a lie to say that a man is alive who is not. If the word is true, however, almost everything really important falls into place. What changes if that word is true? What changes if he has risen? Well, for one, there's evidence of the reality of God's existence. Notice that that word is past tense and it's passive. He has risen. It points to the one who did the raising, to the one Jesus called his father. It tells us that there really is a God up there who interacts in this world. Secondly, it gives us a new understanding of death. If God really did raise Jesus, then all of us, perhaps, can have hope of surviving our own deaths. Third, it gives us a new understanding of life. For if Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead, then Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the king. And each one of us here this morning and all over the globe are summoned to pledge loyalty to him and to follow his rule for life, which invests all of our lives with deep meaning and privilege and purpose. The reality of the resurrection can change everything for you. Not just the way you think about God and life and death, but your experience your experience of God, life, and death. This story summons you. It summons you into its own truthfulness. It's asking you here this morning to deal with the reality of the resurrection. And when you've done that, everything else falls into place. I've told this illustration before, but I love it. There's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon strip where uh, they're doing math in class. And the teacher asked if there were any questions. And Calvin shoots his hand up. And he says, yes, I have a question. What is the meaning of the universe? What is the meaning of the universe? And the teacher said, Calvin, that's not really relevant. And Calvin said, well, I don't see the point of doing any more math until we can answer this one. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the idea of the resurrection. Until we deal with this question, until we deal with this issue, it doesn't matter what else we think, and it doesn't really matter what else we have dealt with. That's the reality of the resurrection. It's the truth this narrative invites you in faith into. Can I show you one more thing about this story uh, before we move on? Something I've really never thought about until this week. The angel directs the women to go tell the disciples what they've witnessed, verse 7. And so the women, on their way, back to uh, meet the disciples, receive the inestimable privilege of being the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Look in verse 9 with me. Verse 9, behold, Jesus met them. Jesus met them. And here's what I want you to ponder with me. What would you imagine Jesus's first words to be? After he's been raised from the dead, you might expect his first words to be, all hail the king right? You might expect his first words to be, stand back. This is holy ground. Don't touch me. Uh, I read a story this week about a pastor who was doing a children's sermon on Easter. Side note, this is why we're not doing a children's sermon on Easter, because you can't predict what's going to happen. And uh, the pastor asked the kids, 
What do you think Jesus' first words to his disciples were after he was raised from the dead? But of course, before the pastor could give an answer, a little girl's hand shot up. I know, I know, I know. Pick me, pick me, pick me. And the pastor thought, okay, yes. And she goes, (laughs) ta-da! But that's not Jesus' first words either. His first word is, Greetings. You see it there in verse 9. That's an informal way for Middle Easterners then and now to basically greet one another. The closest English equivalent is hi. Hey, maybe even what's up? What does that mean? Why would Matthew have included this in his retelling of the story? Well, I think it means that Jesus is still a human. Jesus, even after his resurrection, is still near to us. Jesus is still like us in every way, except without sin. And of course, it's that now he has a perfected, resurrected body. This is a small and significant way in which Matthew, in which the Holy Spirit, through the scripture, reminds us. Listen, it reminds us that the real God is a God who draws near. The real God is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one who returns from defeating death and meets a few scared women on the road and says, hi. That's how close Jesus is to us. That's how much of a friend he can be to you. That's how familiar and how intimately associated he longs to be with those who will accept him for who he is. That changes everything. And so the question is, do you see Jesus in this way? Do you know that that's what the real God is like? A God who is powerful enough to beat back the darkness of death and loving enough to come to you and say, how's it going? So what do the women do? Well, verse 9, they come up and they take hold of his feet. They touch him and they worship him. This is amazing. They grab his feet because Jesus is fully human. And they worship because Jesus is fully God. I love what Martin Luther writes about this verse. He says, forget all speculation about God. Hold on to the man Jesus Christ. He's the only God we've got. What does Easter mean? It means that God is found and grace is found in the man, Jesus Christ. What's your reaction? What's your reaction internally to the story of the resurrection? Do you see it as something that has the potential to alter everything you've ever known? Really, that's the only intellectually and emotionally honest way to view it. If you miss the resurrection, it's a non-starter for everything else too. The tenor of this message is that you can reject Jesus or you can give everything you have to Jesus, but you can't treat Jesus and you can't treat the resurrection as something that's just familiar or regular or something that you can be indifferent to. You don't have that option available. Matthew's saying that when you see it for what it is in all of its glorious reality, the grace of God dawns on you. The reality dawns on you that death can be defeated. Life can have direction and purpose. Hope can last forever. Joy can overcome sadness. That's really true. Someone is out there looking out for me. Someone loves me and cares for me. And one day this universe will sing out that reality with triumph and rejoicing that we can't even begin 
to contemplate now. Do you see it? Do you believe it? It's the resurrection story that's inviting you in to faith. Secondly, we see the contesting of the resurrection. I think this is important for us to think about. Some believe then, and some believe now. Many believe now, but there have always been those who reject. There's always been those who come up with counter-narratives. The resurrection has always been contested. Matthew gives us an example of that in verses 11 through 15 of this chapter. Look at what happens. The guards who were guarding Jesus' tomb, they go back in shame and they tell the religious leaders, the religious authorities, the elders and the chief priests, that the body of Jesus has disappeared. Just the thing that the religious authorities were worried was going to happen is exactly what has happened. And what happens? Well, the elders and the chief priests, they bribe the guards, right? They bribe the guards to lie. Verse 13, here's what we want you to tell people. Here's our counter narrative. His disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And so, by the way, think about what the guards are putting themselves into here. They're Roman guards and they're saying, we are so bad at our jobs, so bad at our jobs that we let people come and roll this huge stone away and steal Jesus's body. That must have been a huge bribe, by the way, a huge bribe to get Roman centurions to admit to failing at their task. But that's exactly what happens. And guess what? That counter narrative, that contesting of the resurrection is still around today. It still has prominence and many other counter narratives still have prominence. And let me tell you why. Here's why there's always going to be counter narratives. Here's why the resurrection is always going to be contested. There has to be some explanation for what happened to Jesus's body. And there has to be some answer for how a ragged, powerless sect within Judaism in the middle of nowhere in the first century exploded so that within a few centuries, it was a worldwide religious movement. Christians say that the answer to those questions is that Jesus is God and that he proved it by rising from death and that he will save those who trust him from sin and from death also. But there are some who reject that narrative. You might be one. We're glad you're here today. In fact, we planted this church to engage unbelief over exact these, exactly these kinds of questions. But there's got to be some sort of counter-narrative. There's got to be some way that people like us make sense of what happens. Maybe you think the disciples stole his body. I mean, that's what Matthew explicitly addresses here. And that view is undoubtedly still around and it's been prominent throughout the history of the church. Some people say the disciples came and they stole Jesus' body. Can you just know with me for a second? Let's be honest. Think that through. What do we know about the 11 disciples from Matthew's gospel and from Mark and Luke and John? This is not Ocean's 11. It's not like one of them is an explosives expert and one of them has this master plan. This is not a heist movie. The disciples are scared, witless, and hiding, afraid that the authorities are going to hunt them down, just like the authorities hunted down their leader, Jesus. Peter, just a few hours prior, has said, no, 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 never heard of the guy. Who do you really expect to believe that these are the 11 guys that are going to overwhelm 
a trained Roman guard roll away a massive stone, steal Jesus's body, and get away with it. Uh, The philosopher David Hume, who was a skeptic of Christianity and a skeptic of all miracles, used to say that in order for me to believe that a miracle is true, the counter-narrative, the alternative view, has to be more unbelievable than the miracle. Does that make sense? That was his standard. The alternative has to be more miraculous than the miracle. And I would say that this fits the bill. There's zero chance these 11 guys are going to steal Jesus's body. The counter-narrative just doesn't add up. Another counter-narrative that's kind of been updated is that the disciples and then the later church lied. That they lied. They knew Jesus was dead. They knew that his body had been tossed into a mass grave with other criminals And the later church knew this had happened, but that they lied about it. They made up the story about Jesus coming back to life in order to solidify their power. In order to create a foundation for a new religion. You remember the Da Vinci Code, right? Fun book to read, and really that's kind of a hybrid of this view. The idea that the church made the whole thing up. But think about this counter-narrative with me, okay? Think about this counter-narrative, remembering Hume's argument that an alternative to a miracle has to be more miraculous. I would say that this is more miraculous than believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. How likely is it that all of the disciples would have all willingly faced death for what they knew wasn't true? How likely is it that all of the disciples would have willingly faced death because they all did die at the end of their lives through martyrdom or punishment from the state because they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. So if they all made this up and had this grand conspiracy to consolidate power for the church, wouldn't at least one of them have turned? Wouldn't at least one of them have given up the truth? You know, if you like uh, mafia stories, the Godfather, Goodfellas, books, whatever you like, what's the thing the mob hates the most? A rat, a snitch. But you know what the deal is in those stories? There's always a rat. There's always a snitch. And the reason is because when people are threatened with pain of death or torture or long imprisonment or worse, they will give up a lie. They will give the truth. There's always a rat because people don't typically give their lives up in grotesque fashion for something they know isn't true. But there's no rat. No snitch. Among the disciples, how can that be explained? Well, I think the best explanation is that their lives were radically changed by what really happened. A man was dead, and then he came back to life again. The counter-narratives and the contesting of the resurrection just don't hold up when they're closely closely scrutinized. The best explanation for what happened to Jesus' body is that Jesus' body came back to life. His heart started beating again. His blood began to flow again. His brain started braining again. Jesus came back to life. It makes the most sense of the evidence. And it has the power to radically change everything in your life. Let me show you how as we look at one more point. The results. The results of the resurrection. And there's two results of the resurrection that I want to show you from Matthew's gospel. And uh, both of these results are important. Here's why. The results of the resurrection, um, they chart a path forward for us. It's as if the results say, 
This man who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to save the world from sin and death, did exactly what he said he would do. He died and he was raised to life again. Okay, so what? So what? What now? What does it mean? Well, Matthew tells us. The first result of the resurrection is that Jesus has all authority. It means that Jesus is the real king of this world. Look at what he says when he appears to his disciples in verse 18. All authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the chief executive officer of the universe. Jesus is in complete control of the world, as the old children's song says. He's got the whole world in his hands. So what does that mean for you this morning, 2,000 years after these events? It means that the first and the most important response you can make to the reality of the resurrection is to worship and serve King Jesus. Notice that's what the disciples do, verse 17. They worshiped him. That's what the women do, verse 9. They worshiped him. The kingship of the resurrected Jesus means that Jesus is actually deserving of and worthy of your worship and your full allegiance. And listen, that really is good news for you. Easter says that Jesus is Lord. Easter says that Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, this world is going to work out all right in the end. Broken and dark as it may be now. Because Jesus is Lord, your life, if you connect to him by faith, is going to work out in the end, broken and confusing and dark, as your life may seem now. Because Jesus is Lord, all of the wrongs that we've experienced will somehow be made right. Because Jesus is Lord, all of the hopeless will have hope. All hurt is going to be healed. All the lost will be rescued. All the sad will receive consolation. Because Jesus is Lord, the outcome of every single event of history on the world stage and the outcome of every single event in your individual lives is secure and is solely going to be worked for your own good and eternal and ultimate joy. That's true because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The first result is that he has all authority. And the best possible response for each one of us is to orient our hearts and our minds and everything that we are around his kingship and to stop orienting our hearts and our lives and everything that we are around ours because we are not the king. Jesus is the king. Second result. The resurrection means that Jesus is always with you. That's how Matthew ends the gospel on a note of hope. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always. To the very end of the age. Think about that with me, okay? This is gospel logic. Work with me through the gospel logic. If Jesus has gone through death and he's come back victorious, if Jesus has defeated the principalities and the powers of evil in this world at the cross, if Jesus has paid for our sin, at the cross, and been raised again to life, securing our forgiveness. If Jesus' resurrection message cannot be contained by the political and religious authorities of his day, or by the political and religious authorities of our day, whether it be in North Korea, Syria, or the United States, 
If Jesus is alive, then surely, surely, if all that is true, Jesus will be with his people whom he loves forever. The resurrection means that there is nothing in the universe that can separate you from Jesus Christ. The resurrection means that if you believe he was raised from the dead for you, you are no less secure and no less loved by God than Jesus himself is secure and loved by God. He isn't just with you on some days. He isn't just with you on days when you've been particularly moral and faithful. He isn't just with you on days when you feel like he's with you. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you always. To the end of the age, he'll be with you in the hardest moments of your life. He'll be with you when you don't know where else to go. He'll be with you in your own death. And he'll be with you forever in resurrection life. He's with you because he's the king. And he's beaten back the darkness forever. He's with you because he gave his life to save you. And there's no way anyone can take you away from him. Not your sin, not the devil, not your death, nothing. That's why the resurrection changes everything. And so the only question for you is, can you accept Jesus for who he really is? Will you believe the true narrative of this story which is indeed the true narrative of this world and the true narrative of your life, that there was a man who was born of a virgin, who came from God, who lived a sinless life, who suffered at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Both the state and the religious authorities rejected him and ultimately nailed him to a cross, sending him to a gory and horrific death. And he was really buried in a tomb. His body was cold and lifeless, and he really did come back to life, ascend into heaven after 40 days, and he really is right now at the right hand of the Father, listening to the thoughts of your heart as I speak and as you listen. And one day he really will come back to make everything new. And he does all of this for you, not because you're deserving, not because you've been nice little Christians, not because you could ever do anything to make him want to love you because of your morality. He does all this for you because he is a God of immense grace. That's why the gospel isn't just news. It's good news. It's good because all you have to do is believe that it's true to receive the full benefits of Christ's resurrection. Christ is risen. Let's pray.